Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Some time ago, we recommended and brought in some books for purchase, a book entitled The Jesus Revolution. The Jesus Revolution was written by Pastor Greg Laurie, uh, and it really um, documented and uh, gave us a great snapshot of what it was like back in the late 60s, early 70s, when the Calvary Chapel movement all started, which we are still part of today. And uh, this week, they just announced that Liongate uh, Films is going to be making a movie of this book. And the cast has already been selected. I forget the gentleman's name who's going to play Pastor Chuck Smith and uh, the young man who's going to play uh, Greg Laurie. But um, that's something that we should uh, see if we can all see together. Uh, it'll be, this book is Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we are continuing our study this morning, our series entitled, The End is Only the Beginning. As we continue this morning, we find ourselves in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as Paul the Apostle is writing to the church in Thessalonica concerning the events of the last days. For the church in Thessalonica had become concerned that they had missed or were personally experiencing the great day of the Lord. And as a result, they believed that they had either missed something, weren't saved, or that Paul had misled them by his previous letter, because within that letter he promised that they would be spared the wrath of God. But due to their circumstances and the crisis that they personally found themselves in, accompanied with a word or a letter that had been shown to them, perhaps even bearing the forged signature of Paul himself, Paul wanted to steady their heart and to assure them that the great day of the Lord, the great judgment of God and the restoration of all things had not yet come. And will not come until certain events take place prior. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul writes now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is indicating the second coming of Christ. A fulfillment of prophecy throughout Old and New Testament that Jesus Christ is physically going to return to this earth. And then he adds, and our being gathered together to him. We believe this indicates the rapture of the church, which we believe will happen prior to a seven-year period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation period. The last three and a half years of that period is called the great tribulation. It is the moment in time where God judges the earth for the sin and the evil that is within it and holds all accountable for everything done and said. He then goes on to state, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or by a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Of course, he's indicating that it hasn't, that it is still future at this point in his writing. And in verse 3, he begins to lay the groundwork of those things that can be anticipated before the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord is not an individual day. The word day in the Bible can mean an individual day, such as it does in Genesis chapter 1. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, etc. A 24-hour period of time. But other places in the Bible, that same word day can mean a long period of time. And the concept of the day of the Lord is a concept originating in the Old Testament and brought into the New Testament. Further clarified in the New Testament, it gives us the understanding that God will judge during this period of time, but also restore all things back onto himself. And he says, let no one deceive you, verse 3, in any way. For that day, and again he's talking about that period of time, will not come unless first the rebellion comes first, which we've talked about last week, this apostasy of uh, supposed believers who fall away from God. In fact, they don't fall away. They purposely choose to no longer follow Christ. They rebel against his authority and they turn towards the wicked one who he now lists for us here. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This is referencing one who was originally introduced in the Old Testament, anticipated in the New by Christians and Jews alike, one who would come as the opposite of, the one instead of, the one opposed to Jesus Christ. You and I more today real, uh, call this individual the Antichrist. An individual that will arise during these last days. In Revelation chapter 6, the Antichrist comes to the world's attention. I believe he is the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6, not 19. Revelation 6. This individual emerges on the world scene. And he appears initially to be a man of peace. And he'll have all the answers regarding politics, economics, and religion. Unifying all three of those branches and allowing for what the Bible indicates will be a one world government consistent of ten nations that will rule the entire world. Now you may think that is just craziness. It's only craziness to us who are here in the United States of America. And it's only craziness to us because we've only had a nation for 240-some years now. But if you look back through the annals of history, you quickly discover that the world was often run by various emperors. And various empires reigned over the entire world. Going all the way back to the Babylonians. And then the Medes and the Persians. And then the Greeks. And then the Romans, etc. We even know more closely related to us, you know, the rise of the British Empire. And the control that they had over the whole entire world. 
A one-ruling empire is not a novel idea. It is a concept that has been throughout the history of mankind. And the Bible tells us, specifically in the book of Daniel, that these world empires will proceed one right after another, Daniel chapter 2. But in the last days, Daniel tells us that there will be one more world empire consisting of ten nations which are represented in a ten toes of a statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees within a dream, not understanding the various elements of that statue, then turns to Daniel for the interpretation. And you can read it for yourself. We're going to look at some of the Daniel prophecies later in our study. But to catch up and to help you with the vocabulary concerning eschatology, I feel it's important to introduce these concepts to you uh, numerous times over the course of the several weeks. But this ten-toe indication that there's going to be one more world empire that's going to have its roots within the Roman Empire, but also mingled with others. And from these ten nations comes one who will be the one that is known in the Bible as the little horn in Daniel, the man of lawlessness here in our text, son of perdition or destruction, or as we more commonly know him of, that is the Antichrist. And he will oppose all that Christ has established. Demanding himself at one point in his reign of seven years to be worshipped as God himself as he places himself within the temple, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem that will take place in the last days. He will require all men, women, and children to worship him as God. The book of Daniel tells us this, and we had a partial fulfillment of this prophecy or a short-term fulfillment in a person named Anicus Epiphanes IV, who went in and defiled the the Jewish temple and raised a, uh, a statue onto the Roman gods within the temple. And many Bible professors, commentaries, and scholars believe that that is the fulfillment of what Daniel had promised, culminating in a day that the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. Now, it would be easy to believe that Anicus Epiphanes was the fulfillment of that prophecy if it weren't for Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 24. When he specifically told his disciples at that time, about 31 AD, that he says to them in a future sense, when you see the abomination of desolations taking place spoken by the prophet Daniel, meaning that the event was still afar off, meaning that the absolute fulfillment of that prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. Jewish prophecy works a little differently than other prophetic means. 
Jewish prophecy can have a short-term fulfillment, which gives us a type or a shadow of its long-term fulfillment that it's eventually going to culminate within. And so Anarchist Epiphany was a type of Antichrist. Scholars during World War II, Christian scholars during World War II, felt that Adolf Hitler was a type of Antichrist. And you can understand why. But the Bible clearly teaches that there is still one yet coming that will call the whole world to worship him. He will deceive all of the nations. For the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will be a man of peace, of unity. He'll be a man of prosperity for the first three and a half years of that seven-year period. He will woo the world into subjection and to submission. He will appear to be the answer to all of the woes of society. Finally, a political answer. Finally, a leader that all can get behind. One that everyone can trust and relate to and follow. And he will lead the world for that first three and a half year period of time in a peaceful manner as elements start to come into play as he gains a military uh, behind him and so forth. But he will be the one that will deceive the world ultimately. But then something happens, the Bible says. For Zechariah calls this man the worthless shepherd. The worthless shepherd will be appear to be mortally wounded, Revelation 13. And after three days, he will appear to be miraculously healed and resurrect from his mortal wounds. Undoubtedly, you can imagine the world then hailing him to be a god. The world embracing him now as the ultimate Messiah. The one who will deliver the entire world from all of their woes and pains and sufferings and sorrows. But the Bible tells us clearly in Revelation 13, it's at that moment that the individual that we know as the Antichrist is one who is then filled with Satan himself. He will then resurrect a statue of himself, that being the abomination of desolations within the Holy of Holies, of the new Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And he will demand that all people worship him. In fact, it's interesting that in Revelation 13, the statue actually appears to come alive. The dark side of Judaism is a cult called Kabbalah. And one of the practices and miracles of Kabbalah is statues coming alive. I think that's very interesting. This statue comes alive and the world then is persuaded by one who precedes the Antichrist called the false prophet and individuals are drawn onto him, pledging their allegiance to him by receiving a mark either on their right hand or on their forehead. Very interesting that the Zechariah says that the mortal wound of the Antichrist is going to be a blow to his head and a blow to his right arm. There are no coincidences when it comes to Bible prophecy. But he'll make and require all people to accept some type of mark, some type of indication, some type of implanted chip possibly, 
And he says, without it, you will not be able to buy or to sell. Now, you can imagine John seeing these things, the Apostle John, while he's on the island of Patmos. He's given the vision of the book of Revelation. I can only imagine him saying, what is going on here? You know, I, we, we, I must have had a, ate a bad falafel at one point. What is happening here? As he's seeing these things and he's recording these things, it must have been a mystery to him. And though there are clear parallels to his time in the first century uh, between him and the Roman Empire, but just like Daniel, the short-term fulfillment doesn't negate the long-term fulfillment, the one who is coming. In the book of Daniel, Daniel says often that he did not understand the visions in which he was given and, or given to interpret or personally had himself, I should say. And when we come to Daniel chapter 8, where he's given the glimpse of this, the rise of this individual that we know as the Antichrist, the Bible says something very interesting. If you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. I'd like to read this with you, if I may. Speaking of this Antichrist, we pick up this particular point of the text in verse 23. Please, if you will, go back and read the entire chapter for yourself. But when God begins to unveil to Daniel of, the, of this individual who is yet to come, notice what Daniel said. In verse 23 of chapter 8, he says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, or as the New King James, I think, more properly puts it, fierce consonants, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, Christ himself. And he shall be broken. But by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and of the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Now look at Daniel's reaction. God clearly telling him that this vision that he has just had of this individual is from many days from now, a long way off. And notice what this little section that Daniel adds. And I, Daniel, was overcome and laid sick for some days. This was horrific to Daniel. And he went on, Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Today in modern scholarship of Christian texts, many modern scholars are holding to this conception 
that prophetic fulfillment must have taken place in the capacity or in the time frame of the original readers of various letters of the Bible. Meaning that if a prophecy is given, it must be then fulfilled within the lifetime of the readers of that particular letter. And they're often dismissing the long-term fulfillments. For many modern scholars today, when they read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, and even when the Greek text clearly says, a man of lawlessness, a son of perdition, they want to interpret that as indicating or symbolizing an organization of people, a movement of people, a, uh, a sect of people. Not an individual himself, but yet we find from some of the earliest Christian writings from a student of the Apostle John himself. And why is that important? Well, John wrote, of course, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote one other pretty important book concerning the last days, the book of Revelation. The student of John was a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp even indicated in his day that they were anticipating an individual that would stand in the personification of of complete and utter evil and everything that is opposite to that of Jesus Christ. So as modern day scholars begin to dilute the studies with their conjecture and their understanding of these texts as either an organization or some you know, um, compilation or uh, confederacy of nations and so forth, they believe that it is impossible for this to be indicating a single individual, which I hold to wholeheartedly. This individual, the Antichrist. Now, as we further on in the book of Daniel, we discover as we come to Daniel chapter 9, it is that this individual will usher in this last seven-year period by beginning that seven-year period with a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, Daniel 9, verse 26. Remember when Jesus says, when you say peace and safety, then it all seems to fall apart. Remember when you said 2020 would be a good year, and then it all fell apart. We didn't think we would have to go through COVID or murder hornets or, you know, uh, now a riots and unsettling of such, you know, nature. And now we have a dust storm that's coming this way and locusts that are devastating uh, Africa. Do I have to say anything else? Are we in the last days or what, you know? But all of that being said, this man is the cornerstone of the plan of Satan to discourage and to deceive the entire world. Individuals who get saved during the tribulation period will be forced to make a decision of either receiving this mark and pledging their allegiance to him or being executed for their um, unwillingness to do so. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, he's spoken of once again by the prophet Daniel. And the king shall do as he wills. 
He will exalt himself, speaking of the Antichrist, and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is complete, for what is decreed shall be done. Jesus told the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people when he came, in the wake of their rejection of him, he says, me you've rejected, but another one who's going to come in his own name, him you will receive. I have no doubt that he was referring to this one we know as the Antichrist. One individual stated very clearly, that in the evidence that we have, modern scholars are wrong to say that this is simply a system or an individual office that one can hold. One wrote in the summary of the evidence that we have, he says, this man, and let us be clear that it is a man of sin, is a prominent figure in the Bible and the ultimate personification of the spirit of Antichrist spoken of in 1 John 4, 2-3. through When the Gnostics began to raise up against Christians in the first century church, Gnostics believed that everything material was wicked. And therefore, they could not believe that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, a deity. Because they believed that him having any material portion to him at all would automatically consider uh, defile him and he would be considered a wicked individual. Today, we wrestle with the deity of Jesus Christ. Then they wrestled with the humanity of Jesus Christ. So individuals were coming about and completely denying all of the truths concerning the deity of Christ and his humanity. And John indicates in his writings, 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, that these were the beginnings. And the spirit of Antichrist was already moving as people were resisting and rejecting and, and turning away from the true understanding of Jesus and turning to a false one. But he says very clearly concerning Jesus. He says in 1 John 2, 18-19, he says very clearly, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Now, in the King James and New King James, the word the has been added before the word Antichrist to indicate that the Greek word is indicating a single individual. Not a system, not an office, but a single individual. The newer translations simply you have heard that Antichrist is coming, still having the same effect, but allowing for various interpretations. But it is clear from Polycarp's writing and others that they saw that they knew one was coming, an individual was coming that was going to stand against all that God is and all that God was doing. Not Satan himself, who was already here to steal, kill, and destroy, but one in whom he would empower one in whom would be able to do miraculous things, appeared to have incredible intellect, incredible wisdom will be applied through his decisions and his, uh, his mandates. 
He will seem to be able to unite people that have always seemed to be at odds with one another. He will be the ultimate example of what some would like to see in the coexist movement. This individual is coming. And if the return of the Lord or the rapture of the church is in our near future, then he is already alive. So the question then becomes, who is he? Well, we don't know who he is. We know he is a he, so he is male. Maybe in our culture, who knows, you know. Uh, Some believe that he will be a Gentile coming out of the European nations that were once part of the Roman Empire. Some believe he'll be Jewish coming out of those same nations. It's hard for me to believe that the Jewish people would be persuaded by anybody who wasn't Jewish. Some believe that he is going to be the personification of an imam of some sort, but I have less belief that anyone in Israel would embrace a Messiah who claims to be of Islam, you know, and so forth. We don't know who this person is. And there has been great speculation over the years. If you've been a Christian for any length of period of time, you probably have one of those books in your library, Why Gorbachev is the Antichrist, or Why Reagan is the Antichrist, or Why um, you know, Obama is the Antichrist and the false prophet is uh, Oprah. You know, um, and, and we've speculated time and time again, and I think it's wrong to do so. Specifically, I think it's wrong to do so because before he can come to power, before he can rise up and take his place within the world in which it's been prescribed for him to do, let us understand that there's something holding him back. And you are part of that something. Let us go back to First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter two, if we, if you will, because I would like to read the rest of this, as we will explore it further as we continue on in our study of the last days. Today, I wanted to make the point that Old and New Testament alike speak clearly to one coming, who we know and call the Antichrist. I also wanted you to know that it was not a system or a mere office or a governmental system that he is referring to, but a person in and of himself. Because let us know, let us see for, I should say, in verse 3, let no, one de- uh, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he 
who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing at the appearance of his coming. I love that, don't you? I've had enough. You know, Jesus returns on his Harley and says, enough's enough. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception those for those who are perishing because they have refused to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. He can't come to power yet because of that in which is restraining him. The Bible says it is he that is restraining him. Who is the he? Who is the one great enough to restrain such wickedness, such evil? Who is the one that is capable of keeping Satan completely and utterly at bay without even lifting a finger? I believe, and I believe the early church believed very clearly, that the he referred to here was the presence of the Holy Spirit working in and through God's church. As Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. And as long as we are here filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is working as God has sent Him to work, the Antichrist cannot come to power. He cannot rise up and take His place in history and deceive the world in the manner in which He so desires to do. But, we know that the Bible says there's a time when the church will be gathered together with Him. That the church will be removed. And the Spirit working in the ch- and through the church in the manner in which He is today will change. Though the Spirit will still be present here in this world, He'll go back to the economy of the Old Testament where God individually places Him upon individuals for the purpose of them serving Him during the great tribulation period the bible says that these individuals will be sealed it's the same word that is used in ephesians as paul talks about us being sealed by the holy spirit i do not fear the antichrist and i do not look for the antichrist coming this is why i say that when we study eschatology the study of the last days we are not looking to the arrival of the antichrist because he can't arrive while we're here Doesn't that make you feel powerful in Christ? You know? Not any of ourselves. We'd get our rear ends handed to us if it was just us. But in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we see what is happening in our nation today, the vile confusion, the irrationality, the emotionalism boiling over, the heated exchanges amongst people, 
that appear to be utterly illogical in every sense of the word. Yesterday I was watching a video of a young woman yelling at an elderly African-American man. This, this African-American man was standing and protecting a statue of Abraham Lincoln in Washington, D.C. Because his, his descendants were one of the slaves that actually paid for it. And they wanted to tear it down, not knowing what that statue represented at all and what it meant in history and who paid for it, who provided for it, and who gave its beautiful commencement speech, Frederick, you know, Frederick Douglass. And it's just, they didn't have anything to, concerning the knowledge of the statue. They just wanted to tear it down because in their perception, in their interpretation of this thing, they deemed it racist. And these beloved people stood there in front of the gates and the fence that was enclosing it, trying to reason with people. And this young lady is yelling at this African-American gentleman and swearing at him and cursing him uh, and asking him to die. And, you know, that he has no understanding. And it was his family I'm sorry, but our God is not a God of confusion. And what we see happening in this world is utter confusion. This is not of God. This is from the pit of hell itself. And we as Christians need to stand up. Humbly, lovingly, but let me say this further. With resolve, and we need to be resolute. And say no more. This is not true. These things are not true. As Christians, if we're not concerned about truth, then who should be concerned about truth? For our Lord is truth. We need to stand up and say, enough's enough. We need to vocalize and try to reason with people, even though that's becoming harder and harder to do, isn't it? I couldn't believe what I was watching. I watched it several times to make sure I was seeing it correctly. But there was complete and utter irrationality, just emotions and passion and so forth. And yet, she had no idea what she was doing. But she was 100% committed to tearing down that statue. Oh, I can see this delusion that God is going to send across the earth, can't you? And they're going to hail and embrace this one called the Antichrist. And it's going to be to their utter destruction that they do. Folks, we now go... (laughs) We've all been watching our news here in Chicago to see and discover which phase we are in, right? Into the reopening of Illinois. You know, uh, phase one, everybody locks their... Uh, doors and stays in their house. Phase two, only certain people that we deem essential can come out, but everybody else has to stay in their house and lock their doors. Phase three of this reopening plan is that if you're really, really special and uh, you need toilet paper, you can come out, but everybody else needs to lock themselves in their house. I'm being very facetious. Phase four, we entered into this week. Somebody asked me what phase I think the church is in today. We are in phase recon to seek and to save those who are lost. We need to go to an expedited operation of rescue. 
We need to start saving as many as we possibly can. The Titanic is sinking. As Christians, let us not worry about the brass or the ch- stacking the deck chairs properly. Let's get about it and let's have conversations with people and trust the Lord that those conversations will bring about fruit. Planting seeds and trusting the Spirit to water them. But do it in a godly fashion. Do it by beginning to listen to them first. Allow them to come at you. Allow them to try to tear up your position as best as they possibly can so they can aid it and so they can negate it as quickly as they can. But you know the truth, Baba, don't you? And it doesn't matter what they do. It's still the truth. They can tell me that God doesn't exist. Does that mean that he automatically just disappears off of a little cloud? No. And I don't come simply in the power of myself and my own intellectual reasoning. I come in the power of the Holy Scriptures. I come in the power of the Holy Spirit. I come in the power of Jesus Christ. And my dad is certainly bigger than their dad's, the ruler of this world. I think we need to go to Mission Operation Rescue because I think that now is the time The world is being primed. And we see that the problem is vastly superior to any political party, isn't it? It's vastly worse than any um, conservative or liberal debate. We need Christ to intervene in our nation and we need him to intervene now. And we're the generation that God has placed us here for this purpose just as he did Esther back in the Old Testament. Today it is you and I. And you might feel like, great, I didn't know I signed up for this. God's with you. In love, in grace, in humility, let us take the gospel into this world and see who will respond. That they too may have eternal life like you and I do. Because one is coming. The man of lawlessness. The son of perdition.